Amen. Amen. Thank you, mighty men, for stealing away. I haven't had the chance to say hello to everyone. Uh, so, hello. Good morning. For my kids, children's choir is heading up, so I will ask my kids to follow Gwen and Miss uh, and Crystal as well, so y'all can prepare to sing up there. Let us pray, and we can go ahead and get started. Father, I thank you for what you are doing in our lives and what you're doing here at this church. And the church, capital C, worldwide. I thank you that many churches, either on Saturday morning or Sunday morning, come together to magnify your name, to glorify our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the purpose of our worship. That is the aim of our intent. We were created to worship you, and I'm glad that we are doing that, Lord. I pray as I speak, you will speak to your people. I pray that you would impress upon their hearts and minds what you desire for them to learn. I pray that you would teach them and continue to lead them, Lord. I pray that your spirit will continue to be in this church building. And when we leave here, we will have a keen sense of your presence. I pray for my congregation that you would bless them, Lord. Most importantly, I pray that my Lord Jesus Christ will be glorified. And in his name I pray, amen. I'm sure many of us have prayed this prayer once before. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Did you guys know that there are other versions to that 18th century children's prayer? Like for example, there's another version to that prayer. It says, Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. May the angels watch me through the night. Through... And keep me in their blessed sight. Let me give you another version as an example to that prayer. I'm sure if you are a teacher 
or a student, you can relate to this version. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. For if I die before I wake, that's one less test I have to take. (laughs) We are continuing with our series, Prayer, What Difference, and asking the question, what prayer, what difference does it make? Today's message is part five of the sermon series. Previously, we have been talking about postures of praying. We have been learning there are different postures to uh, praying, and a posture is, is your approach to God when you communicate to him in prayer. Like, for example, we talked about the posture of simple prayer, prayer of forsaken, prayer of examination, prayer of relinquishment, corporate prayer, the prayer of fasting and the sin of gluttony, intercessory prayer, the prayer of suffering, and the prayer of healing. Those are, are the postures that we talked about. And I'm sure there are many other uh, postures within the Bible that you, can, uh, that you can see. Those are only terms to help us to identify how we can approach God in prayer. Instead of discussing more about posture of praying, Today I would like for us to analyze prayers within the Bible, or written prayers within the Bible. Uh, Just like the classic children's prayer that I just read to you and you are familiar with, there is a prayer in the Bible that we say all the time. And that prayer is found in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5 through 15. Please open your Bible to Matthew chapter 6, verse 5 through 15. I would like, as I read, I would like for you to follow along in your translation. there just say amen. Amen. I'm going to read from the ESV translation, starting in verse, uh, starting in chapter, Matthew chapter 6, verse 5 through 15. It says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. 
And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us in not temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5 through 15 is part of the Sermon on the Mount. That started in chapter 5 of the book of Matthew. He preached this sermon with such authority and astonishment because as you follow along, at the end of this particular sermon that Jesus preached, the people was profoundly astonished. We do not know how many hours it took Jesus to preach this sermon. I imagine it probably took him to two to three hours to preach. If that is the case, I think all pastors should follow his example. Isn't that right, Pastor Gus? <laughs> I'm just teasing. But my point is this. The sermon was, and still is, extensive. Uh, it starts in Matthew chapter 5, ending in Matthew chapter 8 through uh, 27. Many expositor preachers would take months to preach this sermon because Jesus preached about many different topics within this one sermon. For example, Jesus preached about lust, divorce, taking oaths, retaliation, love, fasting, judging, and prayer, which is what we would discuss this morning. In your Bible, you may find the subheading just above Matthew chapter 6, verse 5 through 15, as the Lord's Prayer. As you and I both know, this subheading does not fit this passage. This prayer is not a, this, uh, the subheading is not really appropriate, or the title itself is not appropriate to what the passage implies. It is not the Lord's prayer. A better uh, title would be the disciples' prayer or a sinner's prayer, because the Lord himself could not have prayed this prayer. The implications of this prayer does not apply to him, at least not all of it. When it comes to praying, I've mentioned before that prayer is to the Christian what breath is to 
life. Prayer to the Christian is what breath is to life. Like, for example, we all know if you stop breathing in oxygen for a long period of time, you would eventually die. You will be dead. Likewise, the lack of prayer within the Christian life leads to a non-communicative and personal relationship with God. A non-communicative and personal relationship with God. Prayer is not a matter of if we pray. It is a matter of when we pray. We know that the Lord prayed often. He prayed in the beginning of his ministry, during his ministry, and even when he was on the cross. He prayed privately. That was one of his patterns of praying, to pray privately by himself and alone with God. I think this is important. Because the Lord delighted himself in prayer. In verse 5, the Lord Jesus used the word when. We know that the word when refers to time. People of today, even including myself, we preoccupy our time with our job, um, our spouse, um, with kids or different extracurricular activities, such as watching television or going on the Internet. But when it comes to prayer, we have to ask ourselves, how much or how long do we pray? Is it 5, 10, 20 minutes? If we are preoccupying our time with different other things, that means that we have little to no time to pray to God. I think it's that simple. How long do we pray is an indicator of how much or how deep is our relationship with God. I don't want to sound like a broken record, but I said before, if you are praying little to nothing at all, then that means that you don't really have a good relationship with your Heavenly Father or you have an estranged relationship with Him. That's like talking to someone that you know and had a good relationship or talking to your spouse and you and your spouse just stopped talking for a good several months. I think the same principle applies. Nevertheless, Jesus said, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. The Greek meaning for the word hypocrite is pretender or actor. That's what it means. Uh, We see And we watch movies all the time. We see actors pretending to be someone that they are not. And the same applies to the Pharisees, because that's what Jesus, that's who Jesus was talking about. He was talking about the Pharisees. 
The Pharisees were actors of their religion. They wanted notoriety for everything they they have done. They wanted people to notice how much money that they gave to the temple. They wanted people to notice how long they fast. And they wanted people to notice how long or how much they could have prayed. For them, they could have prayed all day long. So they stood on the street corners to be noticed. Innately, either you agree or disagree, we are all hypocritical. It is because of our self-will. Either you know that you're hypocritical or subconsciously or consciously. This is what I mean uh, when we are ritualistic people. We tend to do something based on rituals. In today's society, people attend church on Sunday morning, leave church, then once church service is um, over, on Monday morning, we default back into our natural pattern of doing things. So if we're worshiping and praying, and fasting or singing praises on Sunday morning is very unlikely in today's society that we're doing that on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, and Saturday. It's unlikely. And that's what I mean by being hypocritical. Because we, it is important that we are enthusiastic to pray and worship and and fast and sing praise and make melodies unto the Lord within our hearts. Those things are needed for our daily lives. It's important to fellowship with one another throughout the week. But listen, church, that if we only practice our faith on Sunday morning, then not only us, but other churches worldwide is filled with or a bunch of hypocrites. Is it not? It is filled, the church will be filled with people who are religious. But their religiosity have no root within their own heart. This is what Jesus is getting at. He's talking about the Pharisees. He's telling them, do not be like them. He is warning the disciples. The premise of Jesus' words, when you pray is a propositional statement. I want you to analyze verses 5 through 7 very quickly. And notice how Jesus used the phrase, when you pray, he used that phrase in three different ways. In verse 5, Jesus said, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. In the beginning of verse 6, Jesus says, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. 
And in verse 7, Jesus said, When you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans or uh, empty phrases as to Gentiles. The NASB translated verse 7 by saying, When you pray, do not use meaningless reputation. So Jesus used a propositional statement when you pray three different ways, three different times. So if we summarize, we can summarize this statement by saying, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, pray in secret, and do not use meaningless repetition. Not only that, Jesus said, hypocrites like to be seen. They love the approval of man rather than the approval of God. That's what John chapter 12, verse 43 says. Like, for example, I remember, <laughs> I remember my, one of my aunties told me that she donated money to my oldest brother. In the back of my mind, I was saying, okay, that's good. Because she said it out of the blue, and I was wondering, I knew why she donated the money, but to me, she should have just kept it to herself without letting me know. And that's not a diss against her, because we all do it. I believe that she told me because she just wanted to be a knowledge for the good deed that she had done. Like for another example, people would tell you that they're, that they're blessed and highly favored, but their lifestyle is not living up to what their words are saying out of their mouths. There's a disconnect. So when it comes to being hypocritical, Jesus is telling the disciples, do not be like the Pharisees. Do not be like religious counterfeits. Scripture says, God resists the proud, but give grace to the what? To the humble. Since hypocrites are attention seekers, the rabbis of Jesus' time prayed in the synagogues, prayed on the street corners. It is okay, and I don't think Jesus is telling us not to pray in public. That's not the point that Jesus is making in this text. It's perfectly fine to pray over your meal in public. It's perfectly fine to pray out loud corporately. But what Jesus is saying, if you're, if you're intent to pray just to be noticed, then that's being hypocritical. If you're intent to, uh, to just to pray to so someone can hear your lofty and wonderful, eloquent words, that has been hypocritical. 
But in verse 6, Jesus provides a remedy for hypocrisy. The remedy for hypocrisy is secretiveness. Secretiveness. Secretiveness helps us to not become boastful or prideful. Secretiveness helps us to have the virtue of humility. And I must say, I'm not the most humble man in the world. As, I, as my children, Sunday school children, we went over Numbers chapter 12. And it was an interesting uh, thing that Moses wrote about himself. He said, and Moses was the most humble man of the world. That's very interesting since you're writing it yourself. But the virtue of humility comes from secretiveness. This is why Jesus said and tells us to pray in our inner closet. I'm praying in your inner closet in Jesus' time was a chamber, more probably have been a chamber that would had a secure door. Of if you went in a house of that particular time, that, pro, that door will probably be on the, the door that you could have locked. He's telling us to get away from the prying ears and eyes. I think you would be. I think you would uh, be interesting to know that. This particular word, secret, means, comes from the Greek word, kryptos. And kryptos is, we get our uh, English word, cryptid, from. So, when you pray in kryptos, or encrypted, conceal your prayers. Don't make it known to men. Don't let people hear your prayers. That is what Jesus is saying. When you pray to your Father, make sure your prayer is hidden. Make sure you conceal it. Make sure your prayer is unknown to other people. To give you a scenario, you can be in print in the car with a bunch of people, but you can praise just softly to yourself. For no one ever knows but you and the Lord. Now, if you're driving, he says, Oh, Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day, this wonderful trip that we're making, and that is your intent. Then that's hypocritical because it's out of the blue. It's not the norm. <laughs> Some of y'all looking at me like I'm crazy. No, I'm just teasing. Look at verse 6 again. Jesus said, Your Father who is in secret. Guess what? If you pray to your Father, He is not going to tell anyone. No one. If you pray to someone else, it's more likely they would have tell the whole congregation. That's why Jesus said, your father who is in secret. Because your father 
would keep your secret, your secret concealed prayer. He's not going to gossip uh, to no one. Isn't that comforting to know? If you're reading from the NIV translation, it will, it will read as follow. Uh, when uh, your, what, is, uh, what does it mean? And I think in the NIV translation it said, your father who is unseen. I think that's the correct translation from the NIV. But the result of you praying in secret is that he will reward you. So you have a father who, who is in secret. It could have means that God doesn't have a physical form. John tells us that God is what? A spirit. He doesn't have a physical form. You cannot see him. But you know that he is there. So if you're in your room or your inner closet praying, your father is there with you. I know that Jesus likened God the Father to wind. You cannot know where the wind blows, as Jesus says. Similar to what God the Father is. So, if you are praying, your prayer is secret, and you are praying for something, the Lord Jesus said that God, who is in secret, will reward you. What are you praying about? Are you praying for someone's healing? Are you praying for a job? Are you praying for patience, or boldness, or wisdom? These things he will grant. But here's another warning in verse 7. Jesus tells us to not use meaningless repetition. Don't use empty phrases. Don't just keep on babbling like the Gentiles. In Jesus' time, many Greeks would repeat themselves with the same words because they believe that they will please the gods. The more words that they would say, the more they felt that their gods, plural, were being pleased. We, let me give you an example. In Acts chapter 19, verse 21 through 34, Paul went to Ephesus to preach the gospel and while he was preaching, he angered Demetrius, who was a silversmith. So Demetrius, he angered Demetrius because Demetrius, who was a silversmith and hand, who handcrafted artificial figurines or the gods of Artemis. But the preaching of the, uh, Paul or the preaching of the gospel caused a ruckus or a disconnect within Demetrius' business because he was selling these figurines for a profit. So Demetrius, he angered the crowd. He got them all rowdy to the point where the people of Ephesus were saying, great is our God Artemis. 
Great is our God, Artemis, for two whole hours, as if that changed anything. Another example I think of is is, uh, Elijah. When Elijah was confronted by the priests and worshipers of Baal, they call out to their God from morning to afternoon, Oh, God, please hear us. Hear us, God. And it was an interesting uh, passage because Elijah said maybe he's away. He cannot, he's relieving himself. Maybe he should uh, scream louder. That's in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 26 through 29. And this is what Jesus is telling us. He's telling us not to be like the Baal worshippers or the Gentiles who make meaningless repetition unto God the Father. Sometimes when my wife tells me something, I have to repeat, well, ask her to reiterate her question. What did you say, sweetie? That's not like God. If you say something one time, he heard you the first. Amen? Amen. So, if we're not to pray what meaningless repetition, we have to pray specifically. Pray what specifics. Know what you're saying, know what you're talking about, and know who you're talking to. Because if you're praying specifically, then that means you have a understanding of what you're about to say. And when you do that, you have to learn more theology because theology is the study of God. Therefore, it is imperative that we always study theology. Because if you know it or not, your theology dictates your actions and your words, period. If you believe that God is a wrathful God who is out here to punish you, and that's all you believe, then you will be in fear of God. If you don't believe that God is a merciful or patient or giving and and self-loving God... And you're dit, and you will be dictated by your theology. Do we not see this truth in the religion of Islam? You know, many of God or Allah, I should say, lowercase G for God. Many of people who believe in Allah believe that He's not a merciful being or a all-loving being. And we see that because the followers of Allah shows what type of God they serve. Therefore, when you pray, you must pray with specifics and have good theology. You cannot just pray meaningless with meaningless repetition. Look at uh, verse 8. 
Look at verse 8. It says, Your Father knows what you need before you ask. I think the key word here for verse 8 is no. Why? Because this specifically deals with God's omniscient. He is all-knowing. He knows every single detail in your life and also in the world. In the book of Revelation, Jesus said he is the Alpha and the Omega, which means that he knows the beginning and he knows the end. He knows how it started and he knows what's going to happen. He knows what we are going to do before we even do it. He knows. The question we will have to ask ourselves, since he already knows what we need, will he give it to us? Will he give it to us? Well, that depends, right? What are you asking? There's a difference between needs and wants. I desired a better car. I don't necessarily need it. I desire a better home, but I don't necessarily need it. (laughs) So there's a difference. What are you asking, dear Father? Decipher between your needs and your wants. Sometimes, as I just mentioned, we confuse our needs and our wants, which means that God truly knows what we need. You say, I need, fill in the blank, God says, grow in patience. You say, I need, fill in the blank, God said, you need to pray for repentance. You say, I need to be At such a place, God said, you need to abide in me as I abide in you. Stay put. Psalms 38 verse 9 says, all of my desires are before you and my sighing is never hidden from you. So we just talked about verses 5 through 8. 5 through 8, verses 5 through 8, help us to understand the pattern of praying. Verses 9 through 15 demonstrate the nature of our praying. In other words, verses 5 through 8 gave us warnings. Don't do this, don't do that, don't be like them. Now, our Lord Jesus Christ is transitioning from warnings to the nature of how we should pray. Look at verse 9. Notice how he starts the prayer by saying, Our Father. Our Father. There are, like I said before, there are four ways, well, three ways that he used a propositional statement when he said, When you pray, here he used our Father in four ways as well. 
to help us understand who God the Father is. Verse 6, Jesus said, Your Father who is in secret and sees in secret. He said, Your Father knows. And in verse 9, Your Father who is in heaven. So your Father who is, who is in heaven, your Father is in secret, He sees in secret, and your Father knows. Think about it. This is a personal relationship. He didn't say, you're God, although he is. He said, you're Father. Think about your parents. When you ask your parents to be somewhere at a, such a, at a place or a time, it would take them minutes to hours to get there. But your Father who is in secret, your father, who already knows, is there already because he is omnipresent. And why I say he's omnipresent? Because he said, our father in heaven. Our father in heaven. This talks about been omnipresent. He's everywhere. I'm everywhere. He is in heaven. He's on the earth. I think it was David, someone can correct me if I'm wrong, that he said he cannot hide from God at all. If you go down to Sheol, he is there. God is omnipresent. He is in heaven. He is not bound by time as our earthly parents are. When you want to go somewhere and you say, Father, please go before me, guess what? He is already there. Your heavenly Father will never let you fail for he will never fail you, but your earthly parents will. Also, Jesus said, we should pray, saying, Hallowed be thy name. So he tells us to say, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name deals with God's attributes. Uh, or deals specifically with God's name. In the Old Testament, God is named as Yahweh or Theos, and Theos is where uh, means God, and that's where we get theology from, or Elohim. Uh, what does the word hollow mean? It means to be holy. It means to be holy. And believing in being and hallowing God's name is believing in him. So it's appropriate to say, Our Father who is in heaven, holy be thy name. <laughs> I, don't, I want you guys to really understand that. Because as I was going through this text, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. You 
Our Lord Jesus Christ is instructing us to pray. That's what he said in verse 9. Pray then like this. Now, he said, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Holy be thy name. So, we are identifying who God is. He is our Father. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. He all-knowing, and he's everywhere, everywhere. Now, we have to impress upon our minds that he is holy. Not only impress upon your mind, but impress upon your mind that your mind should be holy. Listen, you're inviting God to know what you're saying, although he already knows, but from our perspective, you're inviting him to listen to you. So when you're praying, you're saying, Lord, make your name holy as I pray. Because guess what? If you're not going to make your name, uh, God's name holy when you pray, then Satan will make his name holy in his own perverted way. He will pervade the territory of your mind. If you're not going to hollow God's name out in your heart or mind or actions, Satan will. If we don't have this posture to hollow God's name in our minds and in our hearts. You know whose name will be impressed? It will be Satan himself. It is never a single moment when Satan tries to pervade our minds. Is God, if God is not fulfilling our desires, then Satan will. If we're not uplifting God's name in our mind, then we're lifting up the name of ourselves. So looking in verse 10, Jesus said, Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. God's kingdom is a present reality. Is, is it not? Because God's kingdom is already here in one sense. The Lord said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. For example, whenever someone repents of their sin and place their faith in the Son of, Son of God, Jesus Christ, they're grafted into the kingdom of of God. They are now have dual citizenship. You're a citizen on the earth and now you're a citizen in heaven. That's what Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19 says. We are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Where is God again? Where is he? In heaven. Where are we? On earth. That's why we have dual citizenship. 
More specifically, verse 10 is eschatological in nature. Eschatology means, uh, talks about the end times, the study of end times. As in Christian Missionary Alliance, one of the four four distinctives that we hold to is Christ, our coming King. We believe that Christ will come preeminently. He will come soon to establish his earthly kingdom. Jesus hinted to this truth by saying, your kingdom come. I think we all should have this posture in our prayer. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Establish your rule. Establish your kingdom, which is in heaven, and let it to be on the earth. That's why many, many Old Testament saints, well, well, old saints, will use the word Maranatha. Come, lords, come. Now, when we pray, we should be asking the Lord... Our Father, let your will be done in our lives. God's will is always twofold. It's a, uh, from a, it's a twofold perspective. It deals with God's sovereignty and his providence. Sovereignty means that God is in control of every single thing in this world. Providence means that every single detail is planned out by God's will. It will come to what he fore-decree, or, yeah, fore-decree. His purpose, his uh, perfect plan will be made known. We see this in Scripture. God told Abraham that his descendants will be enslaved for 400 years. Guess what? They were enslaved for 400 years by the Egyptians. Also in scripture, we, we notice that Judas, the son of prediction, was prophesied to be the one to betray Jesus by um, betraying him receiving 30 pieces of silver. And that was the price of his slave. Guess what? It happened according to God's plan. God calls and allowed Judas to betray Jesus in every, in, in every detail of Jesus' betrayal was done according to God's will. We learned that in... Acts chapter 2 or 3, I believe, in Peter's first sermon. But I think this is comforting for us. Understanding that our lives, this world, is being controlled by God. And trusting that his will will be accomplished. So our posture is to have is, is to be like 
your kingdom, allow your kingdom to come, Lord, and allow your will be, to be done in my life. Can we all say that together? Do we want God's will to be done for our lives? It may not pan out the way that you want it. Or pan out the way I want it. But that should be our posture. Notice in verses 11 through 12, all, and notice all of these verses are interconnected. When you pray, Thy kingdom come, you're acknowledging that God is what? King. You cannot have a, king with a, a kingdom without a what? Kingdom. Therefore, you are dependent upon God to provide for your Basic necessities. This is what prayer is all about. When you are praying, you're not praying that you provide for yourself. You're not praying to God that you have an opportunity to open a door. You're not praying to God that you do blankety whatever. You just fill in the blank. There's too many scenarios for me to think of. But you're praying to God and depending on Him for your basic necessities. And that's what He said in especially verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 8 says, Keep deception and lies from me. Give me neither uh, poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion. So, we're wrapping up. I want to, guys, I want to reiterate the point before I get to verse 15. He tells us, do not be like the hypocrites. Do not be pretenders. Do not use meaningless repetition. Um, Go into your inner closet. Pray our Father. Your kingdom will come. Have a personal relationship with God. He's omnipresent. He's sovereign. He's omniscient. Now, he's telling us in verse 12, to forgive, well, we're asking him to forgive us of our debts as we free, have forgiven our debtors. In the Greek world, debt is, refers to sin. But here in this particular text, it's talking about money. We're asking God for forgiveness. To forgive us because we owe so we owe him and to forgive our debtors if someone owe us. I um, remember a story in Matthew 
chapter 18, when it talks about the unfaithful servant that he owed his king or his master millions and millions of dollars, and his master forgave the debt. The same servant went out and found someone else that owed him. He yanked them up, grabbed them, and said, pay me what you owe me. The master heard it, heard the news, took the servant, and cut him to pieces. That's the point that Jesus is making here in verse 12. That we should always have a posture of forgiveness. Because we owe God a greater debt. That debt is that we have crucified his son. That is the debt that we owe. But here's the good news. That debt has been paid. Christ has paid the debt on our behalf. So if so since the Son of God, Jesus Christ, have paid that debt, how much debt we can forgive of others? Forgiveness. Look at verse 13 and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lead us in not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. Evil is very interesting. I, as I was going through this particular passage, and I'm saying to myself, God cannot tempt anyone, nor can he be tempted, according to James, chapter 1, verse 13 through 15. So what does it mean that when we asking God to lead us not into temptation? Well, we have to think about it. God is sovereign. He's in control of everything. And his providence is going to be worked out to the exact plan that he have foreknew. And, uh, so as we are depending upon God, whatever his will for our lives, we are asking for him not to lead us in a way that we will be tempted. Let me clarify just a little bit. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 2. 
it comes to the leading of God, Scripture says that he would not put anything upon us than more than we can bear. So, are we going to be tempted? Yes. Is it the Lord that's doing the temptation? No. It is not. But he is still leading us. It is for our experience. Let's continue to verses 14 through 15. 14 through 15. You turn back to Matthew chapter 6. Look at 14, verse 14 and 15. It says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Romans chapter 13, verse 7 through 8 says, Pray to all, I mean, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes whom taxes is owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other. So, forgiveness is strictly related to the gospel itself. Let's summarize, because I think verses 14 and 15 is just a reiteration of verse 12. We have in verse 5, Jesus is telling us not to be like the hypocrites. Verse 6, he's telling us to go into our inner chamber and lock the door. And also in verse 6, he said that your father who is in secret in, or your father who is unseen, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 7 and 8. Verse 7 is not to use meaningless repetition. Verse 8. Your father... Who knows, so it deals with his sovereignty and his providence. Verse uh, 9, it deals with eschatology. Verse um, 9 and 10 deals with eschatology. And verse 10 also deals with God's providence. Verse 11 deals with dependence upon God. Verse 12 deals with forgiveness. Verse 13, again, deals with God's sovereign will or his providence. So, I say that to say this. This should be our posture of praying. We should understand what we're saying to God. Understanding that he is holy, to hollow his name out, to impress that upon our heart and also on our minds. Understand that when it comes to his will, find comfort in that. 
and pray fervently that his kingdom will come quicker. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Uh, Father, I thank you for your word. It is sufficient until all things come to its full consummation when your kingdom is, is, will be established here on earth as it is in heaven. I thank you that you are holy and we have to be mindful that we serve a holy God. So whenever we are praying, I pray that we will be impressed by your attributes. And we will have the posture of knowing that what we are praying for is already done. Because you are sovereign, you are omniscient, you are omnipresent, You are in control of everything, and everything works according to your purpose and plan. So, Lord, I pray as we walk and leave this place, that this will always be our posture of finding comfort to know that by your sovereign hand, everything in our lives have been accomplished in our Lord Jesus Christ. And I also pray for that we will continue to forgive other people. Because what you have done, you have forgiven us through your priceless, uh, priceless and precious Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray this in his name, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'll ask you to prepare your hearts.